Hi, I'm Aaron Connolly, Research Fellow at the Lowy Institute, specializing in Southeast Asia. And I'm here with Eve Warburton from the Indonesia Project at ANU, who's just delivered the political update at ANU's annual Indonesia Update and at the mini-update here in Sydney yesterday. Much of the Indonesia Update this year focused on how uh, Joko Widodo, President of Indonesia since October 2014, has fared since he rose to the presidency. Eve, welcome to the Lowy Institute. Thanks for having me, Aaron. Uh, you mentioned in your political update yesterday uh, about how Jokowi has consolidated power in the nearly two years that he's been in office. Can you tell us a little bit more about how he's done that? Sure. Yeah, this has really been, I guess, the defining feature of, of Indonesian politics over the last 12 months. And that is what I call in the paper, you know, Jokowi's political comeback. Um, because if we remember this time last year, Jokowi was really facing a whole series of crises. You know, there was conflict within his cabinet. There were tensions with his own party. And of course, most of all, he faced this really hostile opposition coalition in the parliament. Uh, and over the past 12 months, he's done this quite an incredible job of, of pacifying that opposition coalition, uh, of asserting his authority over the cabinet. Um, and he's really been able to manage, you know, his relationship with the head of his political party, PDIP, in a much better way. Uh, and so the, the focus of my paper really is, you know, how did he do it? What were the strategies that he used? Um, and, and whether or not in the process he's been able to sort of challenge what are the typical patterns of, of Indonesia's patronage-driven democracy or whether he's just embraced them. Um, and, and what I argue basically is that uh, in expanding his governing coalition from just a minority government to now a, a formidable majority government in parliament is that he used very interventionist, almost coercive almost coercive strategies in order to bring opposition parties into the fold. So tell me a little bit more about how Jokowi accomplished this. How did Jokowi uh, consolidate power? How did he woo these uh, opposition factions uh, into his government? Well, I think what's really interesting about how he did this is that he used what I call in the paper more stick than carrot, which means that he applied a much more sort of coercive, interventionist approach to building his coalition than, than previous governments or than the, his predecessor, President Yudhoyono, ever did. So he intervened in party affairs to support pro-Jokowi and pro-government pro factions within these opposition parties. And he sort of forced these parties uh, to really come into government on his terms. So there were three parties that had previously been in opposition that he was able to pressure um, to, to kind of intervene in uh, in order to sort of bring them into the fold. And I should say he relied heavily on some of his close personal allies to do this because Jokowi doesn't have his very strong networks right at the, at the national level. And so with the help of one man, Luhut Panjaitan, uh, Jokowi was remarkably able to bring opposition parties into the fold on his own terms, um, which I think is, is very interesting. His predecessor, what I say in the paper, he used more carrot than stick. So Yudhiono used to sort of invite parties in, provide them with cabinet positions and so forth, um, sort of a typical kind of patronage style um, of coalition building. And Jokowi used a bit of that, but overall he was quite interventionist uh, and quite coercive, I would say. And quite stingy in terms of giving cabinet posts to these parties that have now joined his coalition, right? Precisely. So the old style was that, you know, to sort of the proportion of seats in the parliament that a party had would sort of uh, then be used to determine how many cabinet posts they would get, roughly. That's what Yudhiyono used to do. But in this case, Jokowi was able to bring Golkar, which has 91 seats in parliament, the second largest number after PDIP, Jokowi's party. And, you know, according to the old system, they should get a few cabinet posts. Uh, but Jokowi was able to 
include them in the governing coalition and offer them just one post, the Ministry for Industry. And although Golkar wanted that post, they actually wanted a different person in that post. So you see this really interesting kind of development where Jokowi is actually much more assertive and much less willing to sort of bend to the will of the political parties in, when he's building his coalitions compared to, yeah, compared to President Yudhiyono. So it sounds like Jokowi's uh, managing coalition politics very differently from SBY. Is this, in fact, a break with uh, established patterns of uh, Indonesian politics after the new order? On one level, on one level, it is. I think in terms of his style, so you get this sort of sort of more coercive style. Um, you get a more sort of almost at times sort of autocratic streak in his personality, the way he both handled uh, opposition coalition parties, but also in the way he's handled his reshuffle, cabinet reshuffle. You know, really sort of taking a very authoritative approach um, to the people around him and into the into the political parties. But ultimately, I think when we step back and look at what's been going on. Um, it's still a strategy of accommodation. So, you know, when Jokowi first came to power, he sort of said to people that he was going to do things differently so he could rule from a minority position, uh, as in a minority in parliament, um, that he could build a cabinet without any conditions, to, you know, without being held beholden to political parties and to his coalition. And really, he couldn't do either of those things fully in the end. So he had to expand his governing coalition, and it looks much more like what they called the rainbow coalitions of the Yudhiyono era. You know, lots more political, many more political parties in the in the coalition. Um, he had to strike deals with oligarchs. He had to engage in some patronage sort of distribution in the end. And so, when you step back and look at it, while some of the stylistically it looks different to Yudhiyono, ultimately the strategy is one of accommodation, and that's sort of considered the hallmark of, you know, post, post-New post Order politics. It's very uh, cartelist uh, approach to politics, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, Marcus Smith has done a lot of work on this and it'll be interesting. He's done this sort of forensic account of coalition building um, that is, is worth a read. And really, I think what comes out of that is that the cartel theory about, uh, you know, in the old days under Uriono, the sort of the cartel kind of controlled the presidency in a way, sort of demanded things from the president. Um, and at the moment, it's sort of, the opposite in the sense that, yes, the parties have all come together in a broad coalition um, and it looks like a cartel, but Jokowi seems to have a little more control over it at the moment. Um, and that's what's quite interesting. You know, he's, as I said, he sort of managed to, at this stage, um, consolidate his power without being as beholden um, to these this big coalition as many people thought that he would. Yeah, that's yeah. a great point. Yeah. And so we've talked a lot about power and Jokowi's acquisition of it over time, but uh, what does Jokowi actually want? What's his policy agenda? What's he going to do with this power? Right. So, yeah, so now that he's, you know, achieved political stability, we kind of, we have uh, more insight into what it is precisely that he wants, um, uh, what kind of leader he's shaping up to be, what kind of agenda he has. And what I argue in the paper is that Really, over the past 12 months, what we've seen is this sort of new developmentalism emerging under Jokowi. Uh, and it's developmentalist in the sense that, you know, the president now has this really narrow focus on a set of pragmatic um, ec economic programs. And he sort of sums his, pro his, his agenda up in a sort of three-word mantra now, and that's infrastructure, deregulation and de-bureaucratization. And, you know, in his big sort of, um, in his State of the Nation speech this year, in August um, of this year, he said, 2016 is the year of accelerated national development. Uh, and this is, this is where he wants to take Indonesia. So other sorts of, you know, uh, agendas that were once 
associated with Jokowi, with his presidency, uh, agendas to do with clean government and transparency, agendas to do with justice and human rights, things that were part of his campaign. Um, they've all really, they're not really considered a priority by the president anymore. You know, he's, he doesn't see those sorts of agendas as having much political capital. So it's very much about building infrastructure. It's about deregulation, again, in the service of attracting investment for infrastructure. Um, and debureaucratization, which he sees as sort of, again, a, a process of streamlining for infrastructure. So it's very narrow, very developmentalist. It's, it's a reform agenda, but perhaps not the reform agenda that uh, many Western observers and, and right. Jakarta Menteng elite assumed would be Jokowi's reform agenda when he ran for president two years ago. Right, exactly. And I think what's really surprised most people, people who sort of supported Jokowi in the campaign and, and people who followed his career, you know, as a governor of Jakarta and as a mayor of Solo, is that what's really surprised them is the fact that you have this sort of developmentalist agenda, but without an attendant program for clean government and transparency. And in fact, what we've seen is Jokowi really embrace this kind of very conventional and conservative um, idea, it's quite, and it's very conventional, you know, within Indonesia's political class, this idea that anti-corruption reforms are very disruptive. You know, an anti-corruption crusade um, is disruptive. It actually hinders development. It gets in the way. Um, it's controversial. And so Jokowi has taken this approach to corruption now, which is much more focused on prevention rather than punishment. Um, and he has, in fact, instructed, you know, police, uh, the courts, and, and from memory also the, anti -corruption, uh, the Corruption Eradication Commission to go easy on infrastructure projects, um, and to not spend too much time investigating infrastructure projects uh, because it might interrupt them, it might slow them down. Uh, and I think this sort of shift in not just in rhetoric, but in you know the Jokowi's attitude to corruption within the bureaucracy is probably the most alarming and and most surprising element of his developmentalist agenda. If I could ask you just one more question that's a, a little bit off topic and wasn't your, your political update, but you're writing a, a Lowy Institute paper on resource nationalism. <laughs> and I'm just curious as to how uh, Jokowi has approached you know, these very nationalist uh, uh, strains within Indonesian thought about natural resources um, that were very much on the rise as he was taking power. How has he managed that, that nationalism? Yeah, I think, again, this surprised some onlookers because, you know, coming from the private sector, uh, Jokowi, you know, he's a, he's a furniture sale, uh, exporter, he's a private sector entrepreneur. People thought that he might take a much more uh, liberal, liberally oriented approach to a whole range of economic policy problems, but including in the resource sectors. And, you know, he was widely seen as a pragmatist, not an ideologue. Um, and that for those reasons, you'd see a kind of rolling back of some of the anti-foreign policies and the protectionist policies that we saw emerging under Uriono during his, um, his, his last few years in power. Um, and instead, what we've seen is Jokowi sort of riding this wave of economic nationalism. He's sort of embracing the kind of the tailwinds of the economic nationalism that he inherited, including in the resource sectors. And I think that's partly um, his nature. You know, he's, he's not ideologically committed to a nationalist or a liberal kind of, you know, um, economic um, regime. And, and so he's quite changeable and, he's, quite, and he, he's easily influenced by the people around him. And we know that there are a lot of people within Indonesia's political class and it's policy-making class that, that are attracted to the nationalist position. And so when it comes to big resource projects, whether they're oil and gas, whether they're mining, um, both it, it's 
politically attractive to take the nationalist position uh, and there's a lot of pressure on Jokowi to take the nationalist position. And so we've seen him um, really embracing that kind of, um, you know, the, the more uh, conservative nationalist orientation. Um, and that surprised many people. But in fact, I think we should see that as quite typical and quite conventional. Yeah. Well, Eve, thanks again for uh, coming by the Lowy Institute to, to deliver the, uh, the Indonesia update this year. Pleasure. Thank yeah. you very much.